Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. Who here has ever been up Parliament Hill? Yes. Yeah, most of you. Good. Who here has ever been camping? Yes. I mean proper camping, not like the kind of where you go to a house and you've got everything you have in, at home anyway. Yeah, good. Who here has ever been lost in the dark? Great, okay. That's most of you. You need this, because I'm going to um, ask you to use your imagination. I'm going to set the scene um, for the verse that we're going to speak about today. So if you close your eyes for a moment, I'd like you to imagine yourself standing on a high hill looking over a city. It's a little bit like Parliament Hill. It's just a bit warmer, actually. (laughs) We're not in London. We're actually in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. So you're standing on the Temple Mount next to Jerusalem, and the sun is setting, and as you stand on this hill, you can see the contours of the city, kind of like dimly and fading, and it goes darker. Um, but as you, know, you look around you, you notice that the light, the city is lit up with all these little lights, and there's fires everywhere. It's actually the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, um, where the Israelites would remember that God had taken them out of Egypt through the desert to the Promised Land. Um, There's boots everywhere, tents, and people would be staying in these boots. And um, yeah, this is what they remembered. And people would be staying here, and they would be remembering that they were taken through the Sinai Desert. And in the Mishnah, this is like a a written account of the famous oral tradition of the Jews. It says that there was not a, a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not lit up by the festivities. Now keep your eyes closed. We're going for a little walk. We're going to enter the temple. Um, And as you pass through what was called the Gentiles' courtyard, you enter the women's courtyard, which was really just a stone throw away from the entrance of the temple. Gentiles weren't actually allowed here, so most of you are very lucky to be here. Um, As you watch around you, you see these four enormous golden pillars. They would have been about 22 meters tall. And as you watch from the crowd, four young priests are climbing up ladders towards those bowls. And with wicks made out of worn priest clothing, they would light up the oil that was inside those bowls. And this huge light would just be spreading around and everything around you would um, would just be bathing in this beautiful light. Um, can you see it? Yeah. It's yeah. good. Now, as you stand in the crowd, a young man in his early 30s called Jesus, he comes out of the crowd and, and says these words that we look at today. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay, you may open your eyes. Can you see it? Yeah. Amazing. Um, We know actually that this was very likely the setting in which Jesus spoke these words. We know from John that he was, on the last day of the the Feast of Tabernacles, he was in Jerusalem. Um, And we're we're actually looking, we're currently in a series on the I Am statements of Jesus as they're recorded in John. So we've looked at, I'm the bread of life, uh, I'm the door. Um, We've looked at, before Abraham was, I am, quite a cryptic one. But if you've been there, then that's a, a, a brilliant one. We've looked at how Jesus refers to himself in all these different ways and what that tells us. So I think 
The one that we will be looking at today is this verse. So again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think that this text is above all an invitation to follow Jesus, first of all, and then to become like him as we follow him. Um, before I go into those two invitations, I'd like to uh, say a bit more about this context that we've just sketched about the temple. Um, so with the lighting of these four pillars, these four beacons, the Israelites would actually be remembering how God had delivered them from Egypt and had been in the desert um, with their presence, his presence was with them, and he personally came to guide them. So let's have a quick look at how he did this. We have a verse from Exodus 13, and I'll just quickly read it. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So they remembered how God, very own, his own very presence, was going with them in this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus 33, we see this beautiful exchange between God and Moses. And um, what had just happened was that the, the people had made this golden calf. They had worshipped the statue instead of God, which... God had prohibited them from doing. And Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, and he says this beautiful thing to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It was God's very presence with them that set them apart as a people. Um, and the Jews in that, on that evening in the temple would have been remembering that God did this through, it was actually manifest presence with them in the form of the pillar of fire. So with this background in mind, I think we can, we can derive a couple of things that Jesus is saying about himself here. Um, and so what, what he is saying when he says, I'm the light of the world. First, I'd like to say something about this, you know, um, this, this huge claim on the light of the world that is actually referring to his own divinity, his own being God. Um, we've seen this already a couple of times, but the most clear was the, the statement before Abram was, I am, because we know from the Old Testament that this is what God used to refer to himself. He gave Moses the name at the burning bush, I am, Yahweh. Um, but here I think there's a very similar thing going on. It was, after all, God himself that went with the people through the desert. Um, so they'd be remembering that God was with them in his own presence. And if this was at the forefront of everyone's minds, and Jesus makes a statement about himself, I think the link would have been obvious uh, to anyone who was listening. And there's even a case, I think, that you can make biblically that this pillar of fire that took the Israelites and led their way, um, this is, sounds very mysterious and deep, but might have been Jesus himself. There's a statement in Jude uh, where it says in verse 5, there's just a really short letter all the way at the end of the Bible, 
where it says um, it was Jesus who led the people out of Egypt. And there's a, there's a lot to this, and I'm um, not going to go into depth in it, but there's a lot to say about this, this, big, this big statement. But the key point is this. Jesus is not just claiming to be some light, some kind of guru to help us find you know, ourselves and to see enlightenment. You know. um, it's not even some kind of brave visionary that's going to lead the way, um, or even just a, a prophet. He claims to be the light of the entire world, the, the light, the light that is um, leading them out of the darkness. And this was, this was extraordinary. I mean, and this brings me to the second thing, that, that Jesus does not just claim here to be the light that the, the people themselves were remembering, that he was the pillar of fire for the Israelites. He is actually saying that he is the light of the world. So there was this big statement. Um, it wasn't just the pillar of fire that set the Israelites apart, God's presence with them, set them apart. But here Jesus says, I am the light of the whole world. Now, whatever you make of these statements, I think um, what, what is often kind of said about Jesus is that he was a, a good moral teacher. Uh, he's probably a historical figure. Um, I think what, what these statements exclude is exactly that, that he was just some moral teacher. Um, this is how C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. It's quite interesting. So where does this leave us? And what are we to do if Jesus' words are actually true? For the rest of my time, I'd like to look at these two invitations that I mentioned before. Um, that Jesus' words, when he says, I, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And um, this invitation is firstly an invitation to turn away from our old lives and to follow him, but also then secondly, an invitation to become more like him. It is a little bit like um, the story of the Israelites. They were first taken out of Egypt. They were following him. They were leaving their old lives behind. And then as they entered the desert, um, they had to learn a lot. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Um, they had to learn to become more and more this, according to this identity that was given to them. And we know that they weren't always successful. In fact, it's probably the contrary. So let's first to the, turn to the first invitation. So I'm, I am Dutch. And, um, you know, Dutch people, they learn to cycle before they walk. Did you know that? <laughs> it's not actually true. but yeah. um, My dad would push us, and he would then chase us so that we would use our little legs to, quickly, to go as quickly as we could. Um, it's a little bit like a, a mother's bird, you know, pushing the, the chicks out of the nest, and they have to just, you know, instinct has to kick in, and they fly. Um, same way, you know, our Dutch identity was not fully formed until you were, you know, properly cycling, you know. <laughs> that, was, that was the idea. <laughs> it's a silly metaphor, but I think to get going on that way, 
the Israelites had to leave behind their old lives, the comfort of their old lives. Um, of course, they were slaves in Egypt, and that came with, with all sorts of, you know, at least their basic needs were taken care of, and they had, it was quite a big gamble to leave Egypt and go into the desert because this man Moses tells them that, Jesus, that God wanted to take them out. Um, I think the, the main point of the, the bike metaphor is very much that you need to, in order to get going, you need to leave where you are now. So you need to leave behind the place that you find yourself in. And I think the call of the gospel also starts with this first move. So let's have a look at John 3, verse 16. We've already encountered this verse a couple of times. Do we have it on the slide? There it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Amazing, right? It's the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, Jesus comes into the world so that anyone who believes in him might have life. It could be freed from slavery to sin, fear, sickness, even death. But the passage doesn't, the passage doesn't end there. We don't like to go here very much, as you will notice. But let us read on. Whoever believes in him, verse 18, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's a slightly less comfortable bit, isn't it? We don't, like to, we don't like to go there. But I think it's really important for us to, to, to look at these words, to understand fully what Jesus means when he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And I think there's a great example of this in John 8. Um, just before the verse where Jesus actually makes this statement in the temple, um, there's the story of a woman that is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees. Um, most of you will know it as the story of the adulterous woman which brought him. I'd like to quickly go through that story with you. So first there's this woman who had committed adultery, slept with another man, and was brought to Jesus by the Pharisees in the religious establishment of the day, as you will. Um, trying to trick him, they said that according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned because she had committed the sin of adultery. And note how the Pharisees here used the law of Moses to expose her sin. And Jesus responds by saying that the one who is without sin should throw the first stone. Sounds familiar, right? This story. Um, and then from the oldest to the youngest, all the Pharisees, they leave. So I think what happens here is that Jesus is exposing the sin in their lives, in their hearts. I think it is the light of the, work, of the world at work. It exposes them, it exposes their works for what they are. And note also how Jesus himself was the only one who could, in fact, throw a stone. He was the one without sin, the Bible tells us. And then finally, Jesus turns around to the woman who is at his feet. And he asks her, has no one condemned you? And the woman responds, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says, the neither shall I condemn you. Go 
and sin no more. So here's the thing. I'd like to point out to you that in order for Jesus to do this, in order for Jesus to forgive her, he had to take her sin to the cross. It wasn't just a statement of, I, I, I don't condemn you, I will leave, and you can go on and live your life. For him to forgive her was the most costly thing. He paid with his life for that. The sin that she committed was real, and the Pharisees' sin was also real. Our sin is real. The judgment for that sin is also very real. It's the judgment that Jesus took on him on the cross. I think this goes for all of us. The Bible says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Remember this stuff, said this, shared this with us last week. Um, we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us are in darkness. All of us are in sin. And the way, is, the way out is clearly, if you look at this story, is not earned by doing good things. You simply cannot live up to this standard that the, the law of Moses had said, no matter how hard you try. The, the only way out is to be forgiven and recognize that it is Jesus who paid for your debt on the cross and gave his life for you so that you could live. Jesus is coming into the world as the true light not only exposes the sin of the world, he also offers a way out, a way to pay for your sin and to be free. So concretely, what do we do in response to this? And this might be very much for those who have actually never made this decision in their lives. The Bible tells us to repent and believe. What does this mean? So another quick story. As Jesus hung on the cross, there were these two um, murderers next to him on the left and the right. They, had, um, uh, they were crucified with him. So there were three crosses. Jesus was in the middle and there were these two men. And there's one man who completely mocks Jesus and says, you know, if you are uh, who they say you are, surely you could take us down and here. And, um, but then there's this other man who says to him, don't you know that we are here, like, deservedly? We deserve to be here. So he acknowledged that what he did was, was wrong. He deserved the punishment. And then he goes, turns to Jesus and says, remember me if you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He forgives him. So repenting is a little bit like turning around completely. It's like if you were on this road um, in this direction and you realize this is not the right road to walk on, you have to turn around 180 degrees and go back to the right <laughs> track. And believing is very simply the Bible used to put our trust in Jesus, that he has made that way for us. Now I think this is something we as Christians do time and time again. We have to continue to repent and confess our sins. And um, we live in an imperfect world with, you know, there's still a lot of darkness around us. And that we will come to in a moment. But there's also a first time. A moment when you repent and turn around. And you put your trust in Jesus for the first time, perhaps in your life. And that's what the Bible calls being born again. Um, and I'd like to put it to you that it is very much worth doing this. It gets you right with God, and actually it allows you to be reconciled with him, to know yourself and to know God fully, and this is actually the purpose of all that Jesus did. It wasn't just to you know, forgive our sins to be, to be on our way and to be all good. It was actually to be reconciled with God, to be in an intimate relationship with him, the way it was meant from the very beginning. Remember how Adam and Eve, they were walking with God in the garden, 
And that was the picture that Jesus wanted to restore. Now, this is very much, you know, um, the first invitation. Um, and I was, I, though I was raised in a, in a Christian household, I actually made this decision myself. Uh, I think it was, yeah, it was the summer of 2015. I got baptized in this random German lake, and it was the hottest day of summer. Um, so you can imagine the entire city was out. There were, I think it must have been hundreds of people. Um, but it does, but even though it felt like the whole world was watching me, it was like a really precious and intimate moment for me myself. I had, I made this decision in my heart to turn away from my old life. And it was like, you know, in the water, my old life had died away and I was risen again into new life. Uh, this is very much like the outward sort of the decision we do when, we, when, we, when Christians um, are baptized. It's to symbolize this decision. I'm dying to my old life, and I'm raised again into new life with Jesus. But I'll also be honest with you. I think after I got baptized, I actually made the worst mistakes of my life. It doesn't just solve everything, right? So it's, a, it's actually a little bit of a... I entered a place that was darker seemed darker to me than it ever than anything I was going through before. Um, and I think this brings me to the second invitation that Jesus is, 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 is highlighting in these words. And I think that is an invitation to become like him in a world that is still waiting for a full redemption, a, a world that is still very much broken and sinful. So the journey doesn't end with the initial de decision to follow him. It's actually only the beginning. And we shouldn't be under any illusions. It's actually a very hard place to be. Jesus does not promise us that when you make this decision, everything will be all right. You will actually, I mean, he said, he said something quite to the contrary. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Though he also says, of course, um, take heart, for I've overcome the world. He promises us to be with us. If we go back to what the Israelites were remembering on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, we see that God had delivered them out of the land of Egypt, and they had turned away from their old lives as slaves, and now they had the very presence of God that set them apart and guided them. But after they went through the sea, this, 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 this famous moment, right, Moses assessed this stuff, and he, like, um, the sea splits, and they can go through, and really famous story. Even if, even if you're not a believer, you probably know this. Um, what they ended up in was not the promised land. It was the wilderness. And a whole generation had to go through the wilderness before they even saw the promised land. And I think if you're a believer, you'll be somewhere between the day that you put your trust in Jesus and the day that you will see him face to face. That's that in-between space that we all, I think, are very familiar, familiar with. And that place very much like the wilderness. The Bible's very honest about this. I mean, Paul, he says at some point, he says, Now I see dimly as if in a mirror, but then I will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I've always been known. So there's this tension, now and then. Now, not yet. Um, similarly, somewhere else he talks about how in just a couple of verses he says, um, we are children of God right now. And then just a couple of verses later, he says, but creation is groaning, and we ourselves are groaning inwardly and waiting eagerly for adoption, for our adoption as sons of God. So there's this real, in just a couple of verses, it's like you are children of God, you are waiting for 
the adoption as sons of God. So I think that's where we are um, ourselves. Everything around us and in the world and even in our own hearts will, will, will show you that, that this world is still very broken. Um, there's still sickness and death. Our bodies still wither away. Um, there's violence. There's war. There's injustice. There's oppression. There's greed. In one word, there's darkness. This world is not um, a place that is, is all light. There is still a lot of darkness. We've been set free, but we still have a long way to go. And I think that alongside the first invitation to follow Jesus, the big invitation here is to become more like him. I think, let me prove it to you by going back to the, um, the story of the adulterous woman. Notice what Jesus says there. He says to her, neither shall I condemn you. He offers her forgiveness. And then he says, go and sin no more. If Jesus was without sin, and the invitation is go and sin no more, I think it is an invitation to be like him, to seek to be like him. And I don't think we talk about this very much, this idea of, you know, we, we've come to know Christ and now we, we ought not to sin anymore. I think that's because we are a bit wary of the idea of like legalism, that, you know, you can work your way in and that you have to do certain good things in order to deserve salvation. Um, but I think we also can swing the other direction and say, oh, it's all, it's all grace, it's all good, we can do whatever we like uh, and we can just live life, our lives as we please. I think Jesus is very clear in the Bible that the answer is not that second one either. There's something in between. Jesus himself said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. He said that until he comes again, nothing of the law will be passing away. We are, of course, not under the law, as in under the judgment of the law, because Jesus paid the price. But we are still called to live a life that is worthy of what he did for us. So that idea of go and sin no more, I think, is a very real invitation. Um, so last week, Steph went, went through these, um, uh, a couple of commandments to show us, you know, like, remember that we were talking about Jesus says, I am the door, and there's these fences that we can, we, we can live in as sheep. And those fences are very much like the, those commandments. At first, they seem to be uh, these, like, laws that, you know, just constrain whatever you want to do. You, you just want to break free and live your life and... Um, but then, like, when you look at the commandments, they're actually really freeing to have those boundaries in life. I think very similarly, and I wanted to land here, um, very similarly, the commandments offer us a way to become more and more like Jesus. Not because we are under them and we will be judged under them, but because Jesus himself lived a life without sin. And we are to, we are to become like him. We are to try to, our best to become like him. Um, I'd like to look at the two great commandments that I think are actually a really beautiful expression of this. Um, first, to love your God with all your body, mind, soul, and strength. Everything you are and have and do, love your God. And the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. <coughs> and Jesus says that these two commandments actually sum up the whole of the law. On the one hand, we are to love God with everything we are and have and do. And this is the kind of surrender that is totally inappropriate if you would give it to anyone or anything else. That would be idolatry. 
So there's this, this total abandon in these words. Love your God with everything you have and do and have to offer. There's this life that you live onto God. Um, if you would do that, that same kind of like commitment and surrender to anyone else, it would be totally inappropriate. That includes, you know, your partner. It includes your career. It includes all these things that we hold very dear um, in life. On the other hand, we are also to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that, that, again, that includes your partner, your family. Your, basically, when you open the door in the morning and you walk out of the door, the first person you see is your neighbor. Again, that, that means we're not to love them as we love God. It would be fully, fully, totally inappropriate. We have to love them as we love ourselves. I think there's a, a real beautiful grace in this, a real beautiful sort of mercy. There's a, a lot of leeway in that. We, have, we should have boundaries for ourselves because if someone makes those demands that God would make, it would be probably not a, not a very good thing that, um, that that is out there. So, um, And doing this, I think, to love our God with everything we have and love our neighbor as ourselves is very much the idea of fulfilling the law. Uh, Paul it makes this very explicit. He says in, um, um, I think it's Romans 13, don't have it, but owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any, and any, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall, have, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the, same, the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. He makes a little... Um, uh, turn to, to this time, to this in-between time. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I think, again, this is very much the wilderness stage. There comes a time that Jesus will come back again. The night is far gone, Paul says. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So I think as we accept, first of all, the invitation to follow him, to leave behind our old lives. And if we then enter the wilderness, the call is to become like Jesus, to live like him, to live a life that is worthy and respectful to what he has done for us. Because he laid down his life, he fulfilled the law perfectly in himself, we are to do the same thing, we are to lay down our lives. And I think that's really what it looks like to walk, to, to follow him and not walk in darkness. Let's pray.